0: This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor.
1: This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Tricia Johnson. Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier just won the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work on the revolutionary gene editing tool CRISPR. Described as genetic scissors, CRISPR gives scientists a tool to precisely cut DNA and revise the code of life. Imagine
2: being able to make a single change to a single letter in the 3 billion base pairs of the DNA of a human cell. That's now the kind of accuracy that we have with this technology.
1: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today we're featuring an encore discussion from the 2017 Aspen Ideas Festival. CRISPR is the cheapest, simplest, and most effective way of manipulating DNA, ever. It has the power to give us the cure to HIV, genetic diseases, and some cancers. It could even help address the world's hunger crisis. But it may result in unforeseen consequences. The technology could lead to intentionally mutating embryos to create, quote, better humans. In 2015, Doudna called for a worldwide moratorium on CRISPR, the technology she helped create. In this Encore episode, recorded in 2017, she sits down with former Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson to discuss the ethical and societal repercussions of manipulating the code of life. Here's Isaacson.
3: Dr. James Watson, who first did the structure with Francis Crick of the double helix of DNA, and among the great things he did is, like Jennifer, he wrote a book about how he got there. And I think when you were 12 years old, your dad put that book by your bedside. So let's start there.
2: Uh, Yeah, that story really was, for me, I think the beginning of my interest in molecular science. My dad was a professor at the University of Hawaii, not in science. In fact, nobody in my family was a scientist. My father uh, was uh, somebody who liked to troll around in in old uh, used bookstores and things like that. He found this kind of dog-eared copy of the double helix, threw it on my bed, And uh, when I read it, I realized that this was a story. It was kind of a detective novel in a way, but it was actually real life. It was real science. It was how you could figure out the structure of a molecule by doing investigative experiments. And from that moment on, I really thought that was the kind of thing I wanted to do in the future.
3: And there's a wonderful scene in there where Francis Crick wings into the Eagle Pub, I think is the way they describe it, and say, I have discovered the secret of life. Explain what he discovered.
2: Yeah, so he discovered the structure of the DNA double helix. So DNA is the code of life. It's the molecule that holds all the information in cells that tell cells how to grow and divide and become an organism or a tissue or whatever. And they had discovered that it looks like literally two ribbons wrapped around each other, sort of a double helical structure. Why was that important? Well, it really mattered because it explained a lot of things about inheritance. It explained the way that information can be stored chemically in the cell and copied faithfully from generation to generation because each strand of this double helix includes a set of letters of the DNA code that each pair with another letter on the other strand. And so it it was a very beautiful way to explain a lot of questions that scientists had up until that point. It also, in many ways, I would say, ushered in the modern era of biology because it opened the door to many of the kinds of technologies that we're now using, including CRISPR.
3: So you were a Ph.D. at Harvard, went on to teach at Yale. You're now uh, at Berkeley, where you run things. What you're famous for before CRISPR was understanding uh, the structure of RNA, uh, which is, I guess, the way DNA expresses itself in the human or any organism. Explain your RNA research, because that's before you even came to the notion of CRISPR, right?
2: Right. Well, I like to call RNA uh, DNA's chemical cousin, and many people think that it actually came before DNA if we looked back far enough in evolution. It's a molecule that unlike DNA, tends to exist in a single-stranded form, not a double helix, although it can uh, form very complex three-dimensional shapes. And that was the question that I set out to address when I was a younger scientist, was what do those shapes look like in RNA? Um, And again, why did we care? Well, it it was an important question because, again, many people think that RNA was the early primordial molecule that could both store genetic information and replicate it. And my research as a a younger scientist was to understand how that RNA replication might have actually been catalyzed by RNA, RNA molecules that could both store genetic information and replicate it and pass it on to new generations.
3: So what is the function of RNA that we know now?
2: Well, lots of things. So one of the fascinating things that's happened over the last two two decades or so in biology is that we've appreciated that RNA is not, uh, you know, when I was learning biology originally, we sort of thought RNA was kind of a boring molecule. It was kind of the intermediary between DNA, which held the, the, the secret of life in a way, and protein molecules that conduct all the activities in cells. And we now understand that RNA molecules do lots and lots of things to control the way that genetic information is deployed in cells. And that's really what I've been interested in studying over my career, is how that kind of regulation works by RNA. And in fact, that was how we got into working on CRISPR.
3: But when you say DNA is expressed in cells, which means expressed in who we are, to what extent, what sort of things are determined by our DNA, and what sort of things are sort of just sort of guided by our DNA but aren't completely determined by it.
2: That's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not paying you that much for getting an attempt at answer. <laughs> well, so you know, DNA, uh, you know, people have been trying to understand uh, the code and, and what what's in the DNA, what are all the genes that make up a human being, for example. And one of the great, I think it's great, you know, things that's come out of that is that it's complicated, right? It's really complicated. It's not just a list of genes, but in fact, there are many layers to the way that that information is actually used. And I think this is what you're alluding to, is something that we call epigenetics, which sounds complicated. It really just means uh, making chemical changes to DNA that don't alter the genes themselves, but change the way the information is actually used, the way So the give me an example
3: made, of one of our traits that's more epigenetic, meaning it's controlled partly by the environment and who, what we do. And what is like purely genetic and encoded?
2: Well, it's hard to give you a specific answer, but many people think that traits like uh, things to do even with our personalities, uh, how we interact with our environment, <laughs> things that are more, you know, it's very hard to put our finger on a particular gene that's responsible for intelligence, for example, that a lot of that is really a consequence not just of the genes in our DNA, but the way those genes are actually used, Mm -hmm. which is epigenetic.
3: But things like uh, particular diseases or maybe even childhood obesity is more genetically determined.
2: That's what people think, Yeah. 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 So
3: you're doing RNA and you get the structure of it, the atomic structure, it's pretty cool. And if I remember from the book correctly, another great woman, biochemist, gives you a phone call out of the blue, even though she's a colleague of yours, you don't know her, and she says to you, we're doing CRISPR, and we need to know how it relates to RNA. You want to be part of it.
2: Yeah, so that was actually Jill Banfield. So Jill is a colleague at Berkeley. She's a geobiologist, so she's not a biochemist. She works on... Uh, on on bacteria and where they grow in the environment and how they behave and interact with viruses and things like that, her research had uncovered a lot of examples of uh, what we call CRISPR, which is an acronym that stands for a series of repeated sequences in DNA. So very easy to pick out if you're reading the letters in the DNA code. You could see this repetitive sequence, very kind of unusual, And what was quite uh, interesting about this pattern of sequences was that it included a series of unique sequences that were derived from viruses. And the question that Jill Banfield had that she was not equipped to answer in her own laboratory was whether those virally derived sequences stored within these CRISPR elements might in fact be copied into RNA molecules in bacteria and then used to protect the cells from viral infection.
3: They first discovered some of that, I think, in Spain, right? And yes, yeah. It was like in yogurt or something. They were... uh,
2: well, uh, yeah, there were several, several yeah. microbiology labs that had very important early roles in it. So Francisco Mojica was in mm-hmm. Spain. He was one of the people that coined the the acronym CRISPR. And then there was a, a group at a yogurt company in, in uh, Denmark, actually, mm-hmm. originally, that was working on how to protect their yogurt cultures from viral infection and had uncovered CRISPRs and started harnessing them for the use in in food preparation.
3: Now, just so the audience cannot feel any less smart than you, when you first heard it, you thought it was spelled CRISPR, as in with a C-R-I-S-P-E-R, and I think you looked it up and you (laughs) realized, okay, there's no final E in it, and you decide, okay, I'm going to take on this question of CRISPR, right? Well, it
2: was just one of those things that sounded so crazy to me that it, it, it seemed really interesting to try to pursue this. And I, you know I've always uh, been you know I think there's two kinds of scientists, right? sort of broadly speaking. there are those that dive extremely deeply into one area of biology and, and become the, you know the world's experts in it. And there are those uh, who are more uh, sort of at a smorgasbord, and they're, uh, they're picking things and, and looking at things and trying things. And I've always been more in the second category. And so when I heard about this, I just thought, well, that's so fascinating that I feel like I'd love to test, uh, do some experiments and see whether it's really true.
3: How did you then get to the most amazing discovery of our time, which is CRISPR can edit our genetic code, our genomes?
2: Well, I think this is a great example of, of, frankly, of small science and curiosity-driven research as well as an international collaboration. All are things that have really characterized my career uh, over the last 25 years. So I got together with a colleague, Emmanuel Charpentier. We met at a conference. Neither of us knew each other beforehand. She was running a lab in Sweden at the time, and she was working in seemingly a very different area of science than me. She's a microbiologist, a medical microbiologist, studying bacteria that infect people. And one of those bacteria turned out to have a very interesting type of CRISPR system in which a single gene, a gene known as Cas9, seemed to be required for those cells to protect themselves from viruses using the CRISPR uh, sequences. And the question was, how does this protein that's encoded by the Cas9 gene, how does it work? And she was not a biochemist. I was. We realized that we could get together and do some experiments to figure out the answer to this question. And the result of that collaboration was this publication in 2012 in which we described the fact that Cas9 is an amazing protein that can literally be programmed with little pieces of RNA that a scientist in the laboratory could easily uh, change and sequence. And what it does is to use that piece of RNA that it holds onto to find a matching sequence of letters. In a DNA molecule, for example, the DNA of a cell, a chromosome, and when it finds that matching sequence, it holds onto the DNA and makes a precise uh, double-stranded break in the DNA. Now, in other words,
3: it almost it edits it as you would cut and paste.
2: It's like cutting and pasting. I like to use the analogy of word processing because it's very analogous to that. You think of the DNA code like the text of a document. This is the scissors that allows you to cut out text, change it. Um, The cell takes over after after the DNA is broken and makes a precise change at the site of the repair.
3: I'm about to make a little detour here because the three major characters in this narrative so far, Jill, yourself, and Emmanuel, Emmanuel, are all women. And I think back to the double helix when they kind of ignored Rosalind Franklin, the only woman involved. Is this a change in science that... um, um, I mean, I I don't think we've seen a major breakthroughs like this led this way. Or is this just coincidence?
2: I think it's interesting serendipity. I think uh, women are certainly uh, making more forays into the scientific world, as well as, uh, obviously, in biotechnology and business. It's still harder, I I would say, for women in my own experience. Um, But I think that this is a great example where, you know, none of us... Planned it that way, but it just so happens that all of us were running research laboratories that were doing highly complementary kinds of work that were, made it very easy for us to work together. Why
3: is it harder for women still?
2: Well, I think there's still biases. Uh, a lot of it is unintended bias, I would say, uh, but you know, just uh, ways that women are excluded. Um, I think women, you know, if you've read the famous Sheryl Sandberg book, I think a lot of the things that she talks about in Lean In resonate with me and, and with my colleagues. I think women are a little more reluctant to step forward um, and uh, volunteer for things, and they get volunteered for things that take them away from focusing on uh, you know, leadership roles and things like that. So I think it's, it's a lot of subtle things.
1: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, Crack and Creation, featuring biochemist Jennifer Doudna and Walter Isaacson. Find Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Google Play, and SiriusXM's Insight Channel. That's channel 121. Our episodes cover need-to-know issues and introduce you to new ideas and different perspectives. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts. Now, back to the show. Here's Walter Isaacson.
3: When you got to the notion of editing a genetic sequence, or um, what is it you're editing exactly? I know it's a strand of DNA, but what would you call that length of strand that you edit?
2: Uh, I would call it a length of strand. I don't know.
3: (laughs) But to some extent, it would have a gene Uh, function, right? It might
2: have a gene or it might have a piece of sequence that controls a gene, right? So it could be either a gene itself or the part of the DNA that controls the gene. Um, But yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you can make changes that are very precise down to, I mean, imagine this. Imagine being able to make a single change to a single letter in the three billion base pairs of the DNA of a human cell. That's now the kind of accuracy that we have with this technology.
3: So, explain to me the scientific and maybe we'll get to the moral difference of doing that in a human being in itself, leave aside animals, which are perhaps easier, and doing it in a germline. What would it mean to do it in a germline?
2: Right. So, you know, if we talk about doing it in uh, an adult anything, adult person, uh, plant, animal, we're talking about making changes to cells that in, in ways where those DNA uh, changes are not heritable by future generations. But in the germ line, that's a different scenario where now changes that are made to the DNA become part of the entire organism if, it's, if those germ cells are allowed to develop into, a, into an animal, uh, a whole organism. And those changes can be passed on to future generations. So it becomes a permanent Alteration, And if you really think about it, it's really changing the evolution of that species at that point.
3: But our evolution has always changed, yeah. right? So right. what's the difference here?
2: Here I would say the difference is that we're doing it in a targeted fashion. We're making decisions consciously about, you know, we're going to change this one gene or even a set of genes to do something that we think is desirable.
3: And the time scale is different. And
2: the time scale is very Because it short. would take yeah.
3: millions of years. We can now do in about... Twenty minutes or so. Yeah.
2: Less. Well, yeah.
3: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Proverbially. In theory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> start me with the animals. Give me a couple of examples, like baby pigs or whatever, that you or, or what, that science has already been able to use this to do.
2: Well, there's a lot of examples. So uh, mice, you know that mice are used very commonly as models of human disease, so we, it's been possible to make uh, mice that have changes to their DNA that make them more human-like in certain ways, uh, make it easier to study the effects of, of therapeutics, drugs, for example, on genes. Uh, similarly in, um, well, you mentioned pigs, you know, so pigs, uh, the, one of the attractive things with pigs right now is the idea of engineering them so they're better donors, organ donors for humans. And uh, this is already being actively worked on both in research labs, but also in uh, a startup company.
3: So you basically create pigs that become farms for organs for humans.
2: That's the idea, that's right. And
3: so what do you need, what happens to the pigs? What do you do? How do you change their genetic coding? Well,
2: you can can literally program the DNA so that they're their uh, organs or certain mo- you know, molecular properties that they have, their immune system, for example, looks more human-like. So you put actually transplanting genes or just altering, making more subtle alterations to their DNA so that the, their, uh, you know, at a molecular level, they behave in a more human-like way.
3: And uh, what about like mosquitoes that carry Zika or something? What could you do to help fix that?
2: Right. So this is another fascinating use of, of gene editing uh, technology the idea of gene drive. So this basically just means if you have a way to alter DNA that's very efficient, you can use it. You can set it up in a way that it will drive a genetic trait very quickly through a population, for example, a population of insects. And if one does this in mosquitoes, and this is already being worked on, in principle, one could create strains of mosquitoes that are resistant to viruses and thereby can't transmit Zika virus, dengue virus, et cetera.
3: But you could also create, then, just as easily, mosquitoes that don't reproduce the same way, that, say, uh, you cut back a population of mosquitoes. Yeah, that's right. And is that being done in response to the Zika virus? Are you, are you using CRISPR technology yet to take on mosquitoes?
2: Well, I'm not doing it, but but, uh, my, yeah. but groups are doing it. Uh, so so um, this is a very active area of research because I think many people imagine that this could be an effective way to control insects that would otherwise be, uh, you know, spreading disease.
3: And that passes along to mosquitoes from here on out, right? It's not just a specific mosquito. It's part of the germ line of the mosquito that's right. species or whatever. That,
2: that's right. That's right.
3: You know, but let's start a little on the moral thing there. When I was young, I read Rachel Carson, and we were able to get rid of mosquitoes. We did it with DDT, and a generation later, there were no pelicans in my home state of Louisiana almost. We didn't know the consequences of doing that. How do we know the consequences of what science is now doing to the mosquito population?
2: I would argue we don't, you know, and I think that's where we have to be proceeding with, with real caution in something like that. You know, there's a, I just I was at a talk recently, and uh, somebody was talking about gene drive for mosquitoes, and they showed a slide of, you know, building a very large structure, sort of maybe the size of this tent that is designed to contain these modified mosquitoes and really try to do experiments in a controlled environment to see what happens when you have a gene drive that's spreading. let all picture what
3: happens if you have a tent like this that's <laughs> supposed to contain mosquitoes. Well... We have nutria in Louisiana. We had places that were supposed to contain them, too.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge. I'll
3: so who's that. in charge of saying, stop?
2: Um, well, right now there are various, obviously, government regulatory agencies that are you know, in charge of controlling the you know, environmental release of organisms that are modified this way. But right, I would say that right now that it's we're at an interesting time because you know this the thing about this technology is that it's moving incredibly fast. So just to give you a sense, so this t- technology is really just barely five years old right now, right? And and already, and we didn't talk about this yet, but it, it's already in clinical trials for cancer uh, treatments in in uh, China, and you know it's it's uh, it's sort of mind-boggling how the pace of just scientific research has picked up with with this tool. I mean, I'm seeing now there you know literally probably, you know, a dozen at least or maybe more papers a week in the scientific literature using the CRISPR technology. So, you know, one of the big challenges is how do you keep government regulatory groups up to speed with this? How do you make sure they are aware of how fast things are moving and the pace of government is, is you know not that fast.
3: I will give you an example of it from yesterday, which will either be reassuring or not. Um, I guess I could say this, Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, as you know, was here on the stage. Uh, And he's worried about the Affordable Care Act, but he's also, this is in his wheelhouse, something you should be thinking about. And he saw your book in my office, and he started asking about it. I said, you know, actually, this will be even more important 50 years, 100 years from now, what you do on this, than what you do on the Affordable Care Act it'll affect the world more. And he said, well, maybe I ought to read the book. So I gave him a copy. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> you can send him a signed copy. <laughs> um, so uh, let's start talking about humans, if we may. Tell me, you know, um, you know you've know, made long, I'm looking at the pictures, longer hair on sheep, you know, uh, uh, virus-resistant pigs, hypoallergenic eggs. But then it gets to the part where you can actually start changing the human uh, genome. Um, where will we start on that? What will we do first? I mean, the little blood diseases, cancers, what?
2: Yeah, so I think you know the the things that the kinds of treatments that really are the focus right now of research are not first of all not in the germline, right? So we're really talking about what we call somatic cell changes, changes to adults or kids, but not that not those that would become uh, heritable. And it's like you said, you know, it's I think the it's very attractive to think of being able to cure diseases that have a known. Single mutation that's causative. So, for example, sickle cell disease is one that's talked about a lot. It's uh, attractive for a treatment like this because it's in the blood, so it's possible to take blood stem cells from a patient, do the editing outside the body, and then replace the correctly edited cells so they repopulate the, the blood supply. And um, and you know the sickle cell mutation has been known for a long time. It's a severe disease that we have no treatments for it right now, and there's a fairly large group of people that are affected, so it's, you know, I think that'll likely be one of the early uh, targets of, of gene
3: And as we do our little moral uh, spectrum, that's pretty solidly in the, yeah, let's do that. It won't affect the germline, it won't affect children, but it will save people from a bad disease. In Guangzhou, because China's now ahead of us on this, so, We'll get to the fact that we're not spending enough on research in this country, so China gets to take the lead. They're now using it for what?
2: Well, they're—I uh, I think you might be referring to using it to, in embryos, right? Correct. Yeah, and uh, you know, they're actually in China have been working on asking the question: Does this technology work in uh, developing human embryos? Could we actually imagine someday using it? To, you know, Maybe we want to correct the sickle cell mutation, but we want to do it not in someone who already has this disease as an adult, but we want to do it at the stage of embryogenesis. And so the first paper, and now there's several actually published, uh, that was about this topic was, was published in the spring of 2015 using non-viable human embryos. And it really sparked, you know, it attracted a huge amount of attention because I think it really brought to the forefront the idea that, you know, this technology is really on our doorstep and we have to make a decision as a society, are we going to proceed with this kind of... of uh, and when you say embryo.
3: the embryos, it meant that it would be all future generations would have this fix.
2: If, if those embryos were uh, to be implanted, if they were viable and implanted, uh, then in principle, Yes.
3: And the fact that they were non-viable was just a small choice. You could They could have chosen to use viable ones.
2: Correct, yeah. So yeah. this is
3: ready to go.
2: Well, mm, yeah, you know. I mean, in the next
3: <laughs> five to ten years.
2: I, I certainly think in that period of time, yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: So um, what type of things could, if you were thinking of doing it, what would be the things that you would say I want to apply it to this.
2: In in embryos? Yeah. I personally am not ready to go there yet, I have to say. I think that, you know, first of all, I think that uh, there needs to be a broad what we call sort of a broad societal consensus about whether that type of use of gene editing should proceed. And there obviously hasn't been the opportunity. So if you
3: knew that somebody that. genetically, an embryo, was going to get a fatal blood disease, you would not fix it?
2: I would advise um, other approaches, I think, today. I think, I think the use of, of it in, somatic, in a somatic cell kind of application should happen first. And, um, you know, partly for safety reasons, but really, frankly, also to, to, you know, give us, us, all of us, time to grapple with this, this issue. Are we going to start editing the germline? Because, honestly, once that begins, I think it'll be very hard to stop. It'll be very hard to say, I'm going to do this thing, but not that thing. Because everybody's feelings about this, I think, will be, be different. And who decides? Who pays for it? You know, there's a lot but of But you say we
3: should, it. we, the responsible people, should pause put a moratorium, not do it till we grapple. Um, Your co-author, Sam Sternberg, right? I think was a graduate student of yours? Yes, yeah. And so a woman, I assume it's a woman by the pseudonym, named Christina, who's a, I assume, an entrepreneur type. This is very recently. Yeah. Comes to him and says, let's do it. And she's not, she's trying to commercialize this. And she would, I assume make all of our children taller and smarter. and I mean, it's pretty easy to do. um, Let's take a specific example that you could do with the gene, which I think is have uh, stronger bones. That's a pretty simple genetic thing, right?
2: Or bigger muscles.
3: Bigger muscles. Two things that people might want to say, I want all my kids and kids' kids, to have stronger bones and bigger muscles. And that's scientifically conceivable because those are truly things you can find on the genome that you could change, right? right? I want to make sure I have the science right. Yeah. So Christina goes to your partner and says, let's market this. What, yeah. what happened?
2: Tr- and by the way, that's a true story.
3: <laughs> and you I won't give of, us her that last blew name, my right? Mind.
2: <laughs> oh, do you, do you want her last name?
3: Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> Just tell the camera. I actually think it's, well, I'm not going to go there, but this is something that ought to be talked about more. If there are Silicon Valley entrepreneurs trying to hire you and your graduate students to market this to make people's kids have stronger bones or bigger muscles, there probably should be more publicity. To my because- knowledge,
2: that isn't happening today, but, but, but that doesn't mean it won't in the future. I certainly am aware people that are- Wait, what happened? She are- came
3: to Sam, right?
2: Well, this person really came to, to my student, yes, and, and and said that she wanted. She said she herself wanted to have the first CRISPR baby, and that she wanted to commercialize the technology, create a company that would offer this service to parents, and allow them a you know kind of a menu of of options. And wow, we were really I, pretty shocked at the time, uh, Sam and I. Uh, not not so much now, given all that's gone on, but. You know, I think it really does illustrate a couple of important points. I think you're bringing up this idea that, you know, there's a whole commercial aspect to all of this that is um, something that I think people are, you know, we're all sort of grappling with. And secondly, uh, you know, it really does get to the moral and ethical uh, challenges around this technology. Christina could not do that today in the United States, right? It would not be possible for her to do that. But could she do it in certain other parts of the world? Potentially, yes. Will you
3: suspect that Christina, or some Christina like that, is now in Guangzhou, China, trying to make that deal?
2: Let's just say I wouldn't be surprised if I were told that were true.
3: So people in the United States who are wealthy enough and have the feeling they could go this far in the moral spectrum could, in theory, go to a company in the foreseeable future, say, five to ten years, and say... Here's the menu I want on my baby.
0: I think it could happen, yes. This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor.
3: Let's start thinking now through the moral things. Suppose in the genetic line a family They've got uh, a blood disease, whatever it may be. Um, would that be okay to say, let's turn that one off?
2: Are you asking me my personal opinion? Yeah, yeah. Or? I mean, uh,
3: we could ask, yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Well, you know, again, I think it comes down to you know, is it to me? You know, I think with any technology, you first and foremost have to ask sort of risk versus benefit. So, if it were me, I'd want to know, you know, first of all, does this even work, right? Is this company? Do they have any credentials? Do they have any evidence? You know, what's the what's the safety of this? Does it work? Um, And then you have to decide, you know, is the risk because there's always risk? You know, is the risk worth the, the benefit? Are there alternatives that would be better or just as good that I should consider? I think we have to do that with any, and any suppose, therapy
3: or technology. Uh, the benefit is better than the risk. Well, you then I, it. Think
2: it, I think at some point it might be something we have to, we have to consider. I mean, I had, we had an interesting meeting in early January of 2015. I think we talk about it in sure. the book where a group of scientists was kind of a smaller group, about 20 people, including Paul Berg and David Baltimore, who had been involved in the early discussions in the 1970s around the ethics of molecular cloning. And well, why don't
3: you, let's pause there, because yeah. there's something famous called the Berg Ladder on cloning, where they say moratorium on cloning.
2: Right, right.
3: And that's kind of held, right?
2: Well, it's, uh, we're talking about two different things. So, you know, molecular cloning means making copies of little pieces of DNA right. in bacteria, and that has been shown to be quite safe to do. So, okay. um, so that's done widely now and in, in across the world in, in biology labs. Um,
3: so flash forward to today. Yeah. Could you all have a moratorium, because all of you scientists get together, or is that um, wishful thinking?
2: Well, I think you could. I mean, I think, you know, that was the idea of that early meeting was to ask, you know, would it be possible to build a consensus globally among the scientific and clinical communities about the way to proceed with this very powerful technology? And that's really what many people are now working to do. But the the point I wanted to make about that meeting was I thought it was very interesting that even in that small group of, of scientists who one could argue are in some ways, you know, all cut from the same cloth in a way, right? But we were having this conversation. And it was quite a quite a quite a heated conversation. And at one point somebody leaned across the table and said, you know, at some point we may decide it's it's not ethical to not use this in the germline.
3: Well that's what I'm asking. For
2: certain today. things. And it kind of made everybody sit back and you know think about it a little bit differently. So I think, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done to develop the technology to the point where it would be in principle, even safe enough to, to, to do that, in my opinion.
3: Yeah, but I mean, we, but that's five years from now or so. Yeah. So we might as well start the moral thought exactly. now. Exactly. So have the to. question yeah. is, as I asked you earlier, but yeah. you asked at that meeting, wouldn't that be immoral to say to a family, your kid has this genetic, easily marked trait that's going to...
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, blood disorder, not to fix it, right?
2: if there was no other treatment yeah. and the treatment Okay, was but shown let's to go down the spectrum. Same?
3: Suppose the kid is going to be born deaf. Would you fix that?
2: That gets into a very interesting realm because I've had a number of conversations with people in that community. Many of them actually feel that uh, their that deafness for them is not a defect that they would fix. So
3: suppose you had so. two parents both deaf and from genetic reasons, and they felt it was not a defect, and they were about to have a child that was not deaf. Could they ask to fix it so their child would be deaf? <laughs>
2: Whoa. <laughs>
3: By the way, Michael Sandel asked that question in his class. I didn't come
2: <laughs> Well, right, I mean, this gets into the realm of who decides, right? Who, who decides? Should the parents decide? Should they be told they can't do that? If they want to do it, should they be told they can do it, but only if they want to pay for it? It's, I think these are tricky issues.
3: But if it's going to go down the germ line, it's not their deci- just their decision. It, their child doesn't have a voice, but one has to think of the interests of the child so, too, right? Yeah. So uh, as you go through the spectrum of things you could do, um, certainly, as we said, bone mass, muscle, perhaps even height, to some extent uh, other trades, where, where, is there some moral line or is this just some big old slippery slope?
2: I think that's that's the question, right, is really that we're, that we're all grappling with. Where is there a line, and if there is, where is it? I, I think it's hard, honestly, to – you know, you look at what's happened in in vitro fertilization over, over the last, you know, couple of decades. I mean, I'm old enough to remember before and after, right, and, you know, there was a lot of controversy when in vitro fertilization – first became available, right? A lot of people said, well, that seems that seems wrong somehow. I remember my own parents saying, you know, this that seems wrong, you know, test tube babies, that seems really wrong. And then, you know, as there was obviously demand for it from infertile couples, and it was shown over time to be apparently uh, safe to do, um, you know, it's become accepted, at least largely, and now, you know, if you go to different in vitro fertilization clinics in different states, they offer different things. So some will offer the, the possibility for parents to select the sex of their child. Some don't, right? So some do and some don't. It's a very funny thing, you know, some, and there's, the regulation around this is a bit nebulous. So will that happen also with gene editing? I, it could. I, I don't know.
3: When you say you're trying to pull together a consensus it. Did you bring in the Chinese researchers from the Guangzhou lab? We did,
2: absolutely. And what did
3: that. they say?
2: Well, they were very interesting. I mean, they, they, you know, they acknowledged the the controversy around the work they were doing, but they, frankly, they were very frank. You know, very honest. They said, look, in our society, in our culture, uh, there's a very different view about human life and about early uh, embryos than sort of the Western um, Christian Judeo tradition. So it's just a, you know, it's a different culture, and I think that's. It's just something that we we have to grapple with.
3: I'm going to quote a sentence from your book. The argument that germline editing is somehow unnatural doesn't carry much weight with me anymore. What happened?
2: Well, I I really, I described this in the book. I really found, and and this was a surprise to me, actually, but I found my own attitudes about editing the germline changing over time. Um, because, you know, for, for many reasons. I guess I started thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, after all, we, you know, we pick our, our, our partners and we, we have kids, so that at some level we're, you know, we're, we're affecting our, our kids just by our choice of partner. Um, actually, these days you can, believe it or not, you can buy eggs, right? You can buy eggs. You can go to a sperm bank. I mean, you can look in a catalog and decide, who do I want the father of my child to be, in a, you know, from a sperm bank if you want to. Um, that's already being done. And uh, and then, you know, there are countries like, like Israel that actually pay, you know, they pay for couples to have to, up to two kids by in vitro fertilization if they want to. And they pay for pre implantation genetic diagnosis to remove embryos that have uh, devastating genetic diseases associated with them. So, yeah, you know, there's already a lot of, you know, engineering in a way that's going on,
3: right? Yeah, so, Germany did that in the 1930s.
2: Well. <laughs> Exactly. So it's not a it's not a, it's it's not a straight, <laughs> it's not a straightforward thing at all. You know, but but the fact is that it does go on, and I think that you know. And I also the other thing that happened was that you know here I am a biochemist, and I do a lot of just you know I've always done very fundamental research on molecules. I don't do anything with uh, embryos or, or even with animals in my laboratory, and yet I was getting uh, contacted, and and this happens now routinely. By patients, families, uh, parents who reach out and say, "I have this disease in my family." A lot of them send pictures of their children—very, you know, beautiful children—and uh, they're facing a de- devastating disease. And you know that that hits you very, very deeply. And you start to ask, "Well, if this technology were available in a way that prevented that kind of suffering, why would we not want to use it?"
1: Today's speakers are Jennifer Dudna and Walter Isaacson. Their conversation, A Crack in Creation, Gene Editing, and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution, was held on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. If you like today's show, check out the episode, Should We Design Our Babies? It features Center for Genetics and Society Director Marcy Darnowski and Duke Law Professor Nita Farahani. The two explore the major ethical concerns and lack of regulation and oversight with genetic-modifying technology. Find a link to this recommended companion episode in our show notes or by searching the Aspen Ideas To Go archive on Apple Podcasts. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's Walter Isaacson.
3: Can we draw not a sharp line, but try to put a line in the sand between fixing things that are diseases, very harmful to people, versus creating enhancements, like making children taller, muscled, smarter, blonder. People say, okay, I want to change race. I want my children to be a different race. That's not a disease, that's something can we draw a line between that type of thing and saying I've got a genetic disorder that's going to destroy my blood or is there no line to be drawn?
2: I think it's hard and the reason is this. Like let's say that I, that, let's say that I told you uh, we can make a change to an embryo that will remove a single gene that um, if left in place will make a person susceptible to cardiovascular disease when they get older. And um, and there's no deleterious effect of removing this gene, so um, you know it's a good idea to do it. And would you call a, you that? You could do,
3: an do a bad cholesterol already, right? I mean, there's a you could do CRISPR yeah. to take out exactly not Mike, but somebody's bad cholesterol. <laughs>
2: that's And the whole germline. That's the idea. And
3: that's right, as you're saying, that's right on the borderline of a disease would you call enhancement. It
2: enhancement, or would you call it preventing disease? I don't know. It's a little of both. Right?
3: And is there any way anybody's going to decide that, or is it going to be a global free-for-all?
2: Boy, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I think in the end it may end up being regulated differently in different jurisdictions probably, I, I suspect, just because people's opinions and values are, are going to be different, and it's hard to change that.
3: When we get to the borderline, one of the things that amused me is you can get rid of armpit odor. Easily with CRISPR. <laughs> is that something we should do here, now? It Could be very useful. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the things, uh, in a broader sense, is that um, talking to Secretary Price, but also others, people question the value of basic science. They want to get rid of NIH and, you know, National Science Foundation. And yet it seems to me that everything, from the sequencing of the human genome to the ability to etch transistors on a piece of semiconducting material, all comes out of pure basic research labs like yours. What would happen to a lab like yours, which is really uh, just a wonderful group of people, graduate students, people doing experiments, if the government quit funding basic research?
2: That would be a disaster. I mean you know, we would probably just mostly fold up our operation and go do something else. I mean, this is the thing. I think, you know, we've been facing this in the, in the U.S. for the last decade at least, this push towards, initially it was really this push towards tr- what's called translational research. In other words, people saying, why are we working on fruit flies and, you know, fungi when really what we want to be doing is curing cancer and, you know, curing Alzheimer's? Well, I don't think anybody would argue that, of course, we want to deal with cancer and Alzheimer's and other diseases. But the question is, how do you get there? And, you know, what's, what's happened, if you look back over sort of the history of modern uh, medical science, a lot of the fundamental discoveries and the technologies that enable those discoveries have come about through curiosity-driven research, projects that are not aimed in any particular direction. They're just a group of smart people, often a, a, often a small group of smart people, that are just you know, asking, gee, I wonder how this works. And they do experiments, and that was very true with this whole CRISPR project for us, that, um, that lead in a very unexpected direction. I think that, you know, that there has to be a balance. It's not to say that we don't want to have people working in targeted ways on diseases. We need that too, but we need both. And, um, and the danger right now, I think, is that, and you alluded to this earlier, right, is, is, that, is that if the United States really cuts back on funding for that kind of fundamental curiosity-driven research, a lot of it done in small you know, laboratories, I think we're gonna find ourselves falling behind other countries. And already we're on the cusp of, of that happening because countries like China, are investing huge amounts of money How in that t- kind of China,
3: I once read, is investing 20 times more than the U.S. in basic research in genetic technology. Does that sound that right? That
2: sounds about right. You know, my own colleagues, I mean, we struggle here in the United States to get, you know, and I'm at Berkeley, I'm at a, you know, I'm at a, one of the top research universities, but we struggle to get enough money to put together money to, to buy. Equipment like electron microscopes, another field that's gone through this huge, you know, explosion over the last few years in in the the advances of the technology. And meanwhile, we see our colleagues in China uh, buying up, you know, 20 at a time. And, uh, you know, it's really astounding. And you
3: needed that microscope to figure out, say, the molecular and atomic structure of RNA.
2: That's, That's absolutely right.
3: So I could do the thought experiment, which is suppose we had done this 70 years ago, and stopped, as Vannevar Bush pushed basic research, we had not done it, if Eisenhower had not done it. And we hadn't invented the transistor, had not invented the microchip, had not invented the laser, had not invented the uh, internet, uh, and not been able to do circuits and uh, GPS, that sort of thing. That's what would have happened if we hadn't done the basic research on semiconducting materials, uh, various things. And some place like Russia or China had actually invented everything from the microchip to the internet to the personal computer to GPS and phones. You could imagine Russia being the dominant economy in the world, right? So can you imagine China being the dominant economy in the world if we cut back basic research? Sure.
2: Yeah. I think we all, we all wonder about it uh, in the scientific community for sure. We joke about, you know, someday we'll all be working in, uh, somewhere in China, you know, have running a lab there, if we're lucky. Not a very um, funny job. Uh, <laughs> but it's a very real question, I think, for many of us, is, you know, what is the future of scientific research in this country? Are we going to maintain our, our predominance in that area, or, or are we going to let it slip away?
3: Um, a lot of research in this field is very collaborative, and then it's also competitive, almost like any other, whether it's you know, Amazon and Google or whatever, there's competition and collaboration. But in science, there are certain things that tend to, it seems to me, but I want you to push back if I'm wrong, promote a little bit more competition than they do collaboration. For example, in your field, there's been some controversy where you have George Church and others at Harvard who've done things in their lab, um, Eric Lander at the Broad, and uh, is it? I can't remember. And is it? Feng
2: Zhang. Feng Zhang yeah. is how to pronounce mm, it? Right.
3: He's done a lot on CRISPR. You all have been even battling over patents that deal with it. Uh, Eric wrote a piece called The Heroes of CRISPR that got a lot of criticism because it minimized your role, and he was hit both for being ungenerous scientifically and also perhaps sexist. I think he got hit for it too. But part of this competition seems to me to be driven by two things. One, a patent office that needs to find something that is hard to find in science these days, like who gets the credit for this amazing thing? And secondly, a Nobel Prize committee that can only award it to three people. Does this bother you? Is this a problem in science now?
2: I think it is a problem, definitely. I don't know how one solves this problem. I think that you know science always has included... Elements of both collaboration and competition. And you need both in a way. You know, competition can be very good. It obviously spurs people on to, to we'll do Read the double the helix. Work. It and,
3: was, you know, Linus Pauling, exactly. Wilkins versus... Yeah, kind of a but, race, and yeah. you know.
2: Um, and uh, and the challenge is how to get that balance right. And I think one of the things that I think about a lot is, is uh, how to attract younger scientists into our field. I think we really want to draw in because they're the ones, honestly, that are driving the work right now. Am I in my lab uh, actually pipetting? No, I'm sitting here talking to you, right? So, uh, but, but people in my lab are there doing it, and, um, and they're the ones that are really driving the next uh, results that'll be coming out. And so, how do we ensure that they continue to be attracted to our field and drawn into it? And I think that, you know, one runs, a, if there's a danger of, you know, especially certain types of people feeling excluded, um, if, there, if there's a feeling of unfairness somehow, that that you know can be very detrimental to attracting younger scientists. And same thing with prizes. You know, I think the problem with prizes is that um, you know they, it's very difficult. And I th- now sit on various prize committees, as you can imagine. And so just thinking about when you want to give a prize in a certain area, you want to recognize scientists that have done the work, but you appreciate that you know in, at some level everybody's work is built on other people's and involves the work of a lot of younger scientists in the laboratories who aren't being sort of named in particular by these prizes. So how do you deal with that? And so, How
3: much would you say you had to depend on, even though you're competing against, sort of the George Church or the Broad Institute and others, and um, how would that be made better? Because, you know, in your book you don't talk about them, in his article he doesn't talk about you, and it feels to me that uh, if I may, I could tell a story about what this happened in technology with the microchip, where both Texas Instruments uh, with Jack Kilby and Bob Noyce at Intel co-invent in, around the same time. And it's a 20-year patent battle and a Nobel Prize battle or whatever. But finally, um, Noyce calls Kilby and says, look, let's just share the patent. And they do. And when Kilby gets the Nobel Prize because um, Noyce had died, he said, if Noyce were alive, he'd be standing with me here. Is there, would you like to make a phone call and sort of bring all these people together at some point?
2: Um, well, it sounds lovely when you put it that way. Of course, uh, <laughs> life, is, life is always more, more complicated. Um, you know, I, First of all, I don't, I don't own any patents. And you know, they're all owned by my university. And so it's my university that's making decisions about what to do with intellectual property. They are the ones hiring lawyers and you know deciding how to pursue things, and the same is true, I would imagine, at the Broad and MIT. So you know, unfortunately, I think if, if it were up to the scientists, it might be better, but uh, <laughs> or maybe not. We I do have know, some but, lawyers but in the room,
3: so you so. don't have to keep uh, <laughs> criticizing, blaming them. But it would. Uh, well, th- thank you. Let me open it up, if I may, way in the back, first hand to be seen. I'm a recent high school graduate, 2017,
1: from Berkeley High, actually. Um, and um, so to give context for the question, one, um, it's a context in what you were talking about with you wanting young scientists to be like interested and excited about this, but there might be concerns about fairness and things like that. That really resonated with me. Secondly, um, I'm part of a community that's been historically oppressed through the idea of genetic inferiority, and still to this day, there's many systematic um, discriminations that we face. And so my question is, how do we make sure, and is there any way that you can encourage us to allow our compassionate evolution and our evolution of our moral conscience to evolve at the same rate as our technology?
3: I know in your book, you talk about making it equitable, making it fair. Making it so that it's non-discriminatory. So why don't you end with that?
2: Yeah. Well, I guess I guess you know it's, it is a great question, and it's something I think about a lot. And I've actually been working with a group at Harvard Medical School, run by a wonderful professor Ting Wu, and um, and it's called Personal Genetics Education, PGEd. I encourage anyone who's interested to look it up, PGEd.org. And um, it's a nonprofit, and what they do is they actually r- outreach to groups that have been traditionally excluded from genetics, you know, understanding, you know, what is genetics all about, how does it affect me personally. Um, and I think what she's doing is very important because her, really her mission is to be inclusive. I think the only way we can proceed is really to have, you know, an open community of people where we invite everyone to get involved. It can't be just the elites doing something and everybody else, you know, sort of trying to figure it out and figure out how it's affecting them. I think it really has to be a societal and global effort. And I think pg is doing a great job uh, of, of trying to do that outreach.
3: In the history of science, there's been almost no example of advances in technology and science outrunning our moral processing power to deal with them. Could argue maybe the atom bomb. There are few examples. This, to me, is one of the closest calls we're going to have in our lifetimes, and I'm really glad that you're part of the discussion. Thank you.
2: Thank you, all.
1: Doudna, winner of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry with Emmanuel Charpentier, spoke with former Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson about the technological developments in gene editing and the unthinkable power to control evolution. Doudna is the Li Ka Chancellor's Chair in Biomedical and Health Sciences at UC Berkeley. Her 2012 research on RNA molecules led to extraordinary insights in gene editing CRISPR technology. She wrote A Crack in Creation, which chronicles the story of her discovery and the responsibility that comes with rewriting genetic code. Walter Isaacson is a professor of history at Tulane. He's written biographies of Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, and Albert Einstein. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Their conversation was held in 2017 as part of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. This encore show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and Eliza Kostas with help from Shauna Lewis. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.
0: This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor.